the best nonfiction is just bristling with details. And certainly the reporting should be bristling with details, much of which gets left out. Fame is like a bright light and fame sort of is so bright that everyone looks the same under it. If you take a piece that's very poorly reported, but very well written, you can only do so much with it. How long he has to talk to someone before that person will feel comfortable enough to drop the public mass. You know, the birthright of an American, I mean, no matter whether you're born high or low or black or white or whatever, you believe you can do anything. It sort of is something in the water, you know, and it's part of it. Believe me, it's not a great characteristic internationally. I'm and, still and, waiting for you to take out that CIA badge out. Thank you for listening to Braviras. If you are an aspiring journalist or writer, this episode is going to be a ride because we have with us Robert Boynton. He's the director of New York University's Literary Reportage Program and has also written two phenomenal books titled The New New Journalism, which contains in-depth interviews with top nonfiction writers in America, as well as the invitation-only zone where he shares the previously undiscovered information about the North Korean abduction program. Thank you so much for taking out the time for this. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Parth. It's truly an honor to have you here because I've been familiar with your work and going through the new, new journalism, the kind of experiences that I came across, they were presented in such a detail-oriented manner and after watching many public lecture videos of the invitation only zone, one could see the hours you put in interviewing the abductees who managed to escape North Korea and compile such a wholesome experience for the reader. Before talking more about your books and writing process, I'm curious to know, do you remember or recount any childhood experience which connects with the way you write because when i read your work it's so detail oriented and it's such a nice experience to read it were you like this as a child i you know i always liked writing but i was not uh oriented to become a professional writer or anything like that when i was a child i, I can't remember i mean i think i wanted to be, do the same things every child wants to do be a fireman or something like that but yeah. Um, I was like stories, though. I was like being read to when I was very young and I was a pretty avid reader. And I was always drawn to stories that uh, had uh, a real structure to them. You know, that the, I wasn't, you know, there's some readers who will go off and, you know, like just the sound of words or or want to read something because of a particular place or an image or characters. I really liked the sort of the inherent structure of a story. It was something I found very satisfying and, and something that I think from a very early age made me think about uh, the importance of structure in writing. Exactly. And even when I watch your video regarding what you teach to young aspiring media professionals, you focus a lot on learning the art of language rather than uh, writing with fancy words. You know, really understanding language to its depth. So during your experience, both while working with professionals as well as students, what is it that when you read that hits you like this piece of writing can make an emotional impact? What is it that people not understand about writing? 
You know, I, I worked for some time in book publishing uh, after college and then again after graduate school. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you do as a, you know, a, a young, low level person in book publishing is you have to read the slush pile or you read the pile or, or just incoming submissions even from agents. And, you know, you clearly can't read these are three, four, five, six hundred page manuscripts. You can't read them in, in its entirety. And it really became evident to me pretty quickly how quickly you could you would know whether the author had a good command of language and how uh, whether the author could anticipate the needs of the reader, whether he or she was um, sort of knew how to tell a story as opposed to just being a master of a certain domain of, of knowledge or experience or something. And I, you know, I, this is the same method I use when I'm admitting uh, and rejecting students. You know, I don't care if, if a student, uh, potentially a graduate student, has uh, studied journalism. In fact, most of the people I admit haven't studied journalism. I don't care if they have, uh, you know, a substantial knowledge of this or that or experts or whatever. I really care about is whether they can present themselves on the page in a way that is compelling, that's going to, um, you know, it's going to grab my attention. doesn't mean it has to be sensational. I mean, sometimes people are very, very undramatic in the way they present themselves. But, you know, I'm very sensitive to the way people use language to present themselves and to present their experiences. And, and sort of there's a kind of second order thinking that it's really, I'm conscious of when people understand the art that it takes to present themselves. There's this sort of and it's a, I don't know if it's an American thing or not, but there's this idea, this sort of this, this kind of brutalist idea that, that that you can blurt something out and it's the most honest, it's the most rugged sort of interpretation. And that's somehow the best. And I think all writers know that that's just the beginning. That's the, that's the first draft. And that, you know, that pre self-presentation is itself an entire uh, right. Art. And being from a country where English was something we learned, it was not a native language. So we were always focused on and told by our parents, teachers to focus on vocabulary, use these heavy words, it will improve right. the writing. And what you say is really interesting that it's not about using those words. It's about connecting through the command of your language, through the originality of the structure of what you're writing about. So is there any example you can share for maybe an aspiring journalist or a writer listening where you read a sample, any essay written by student or anything where you went? Like this really keeps me engaged into the content and affects me. This will certainly affect people emotionally versus this is just a fancy writing. I guess I have three responses. One is is the, the writer George Orwell is sort of a, uh, yeah. a, a demigod in my thinking and in a lot of people I, I work with and I teach a lot of Orwell you know partly because he's such a good example of this kind of careful language and also spare language and not using uh, unnecessary words or, or unnecessarily large words uh, my son is now 19 but when he was you know younger I would work with him on pieces and edit and stuff and he was exactly that age where you're learning vocabulary and trying to use the biggest words to impress your teachers. Right. And, um, you know, I would advise him not to and everything, but, you know, he was sort of, you know, you do what you, he has to work through that. And now he's 19 and he's this internship and he, 
he, he was being praised for his writing and he was saying to me telling me that he really learned and really appreciated that i taught him to you know to use words in a spare way and only when necessary and i was very gratified uh, wow he later. got the father's genes i guess yeah yeah well i mean he he sort of had that pounded into him and rejected it as you, you got to reject what your father you know does or, or else you're gonna you know be a, a wimp but he <laughs> uh he you know then sort of came to see the, the value of that the wisdom of some of those things there have been several times i've, I've looked at a, a the, uh, an application uh, one in particular a guy named rob moore robert moore wrote a wonderful book uh called on trails which actually sold very well and he's a terrific writer um and he I remember his application his was the the project he proposed was what he just walked the entire Appalachian Trail which is this trail that starts in in um Georgia and then goes all the way up to New Hampshire and uh and he had walked that and I remember him just describing the the actual experience of walking the trail and and what is a trail and how does you know a trail you know trail is different from a highway right you trail yeah, you want it to yeah. get you to where it's going but you don't want it to be you know paved and everything so uh so this an interesting ambiguity about a trail giving you a sense of direction but not giving you uh not making it everything you know easily deliverable and the space within that and he just you know that you know so he started off with spare gorgeous language very specific descriptions of the experience of walking the trail and then some sort of really impressive, sophisticated, but but fairly low flying thinking about what is a trail anyway. And he did this all in the in, in a page, and I thought, oh, this guy is going to be fantastic, and he and he was exactly. And when I look at some of the main pieces of content that affected me emotionally, for example, the movie The Godfather, we see that even while reading the book, which is even more detailed that many of the great content it's inspired from these books where the writer has presented such deep details but at the same time made the reader think about it so what interested me about your approach in the invitation only zone i was watching this public lecture where you said that while interviewing an abductee who managed to return from north korea there were strict conditions that uh, the person would not be questioned about the abduction so you took out that information in such an ethical and i would say clever way by asking him questions like what is it that you like about the north korean culture and then all that maelstrom of emotions came out just what you wanted and what that made me think is it possible to use such a technique while interviewing politicians who are i think the best at leaving the question aside alas i don't think it is uh in the new new journalism there's a, a wonderful journalist uh named leon dash and he he's very um he's thought through this stuff very uh really in a sophisticated way about what he calls the public mask and the private face and how he has to how long he has to talk to someone before that person will feel comfortable enough to drop the public mask um it's 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 difficult with anyone but with public figures who are you know talking to and presenting themselves in public all the time i i'd say it's it's virtually impossible and uh so i one of the reasons i don't write about politicians i don't write about movie stars uh i don't write about professional musicians not out of snobbery or anything like that i love reading those things but i just the kind of 
work I do is so dependent on getting people to to say something that they maybe hadn't thought before or maybe hadn't said before. And uh, uh, that that takes a lot to do. But I think I think politicians uh, and famous people in general are completely inured to it. So, uh, alas, I my techniques only go so far. Even you no, know, I used to watch these interviews with American journalists interviewing further in years before. And I, I'm aware of the disinformation campaigns that have been going since the time of Soviet Union. Even mm. now we are seeing. If I look those interviews with no awareness about the disinformation campaign and uh, the Soviet Union, I look that the person Putin seems to make more sense than the journalists cross-questioning him. It's like we are aware that there is something going on, but how come it is the journalists are not able to take it out? Because it's all about finding, going deep down and finding that concrete proof which would convince the viewers. But still, it's hard to see that, you know, with such public figures. Yeah, they. I mean, they don't want to be, they, they have a very specific story they want to tell. They don't want to tell any other story. Uh, I mean, it's extreme with a big public figure like Putin or Trump or these people. But even among, you know, you know, writers or, or people who are selling something, whether it's a movie or music or a book, you know, you have a certain story you want to tell. And, uh, and, 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 you know, that's why when a movie comes out and, you know, all the coverage ends up being roughly the same because, you know, the, the, the people who made the movie have literally gotten together and said, here's the story we're going to tell. Here's what you're going to say. And you're going to say roughly the same thing to everybody so that that's the story that gets out. Uh, it, it's, you know, in, and again, in my book, the, the new, new journalism, Lawrence Weschler has this great comment where he talks about how fame is like a bright light and fame sort of is so bright that everyone looks the same under it. Like you go to some, you know, a, a, a football field or something like that, that kind of crazy bright lights. We all sort of, it levels everything. And I think there's something really to that just... I mean, there's no reason that a, that a quote unquote famous person can't be interesting. It's just not at the moment of his or her fame, because that washes out everything that's interesting in particular about them. And that's an interesting point you make that exactly when they're on the top, that's when it's most difficult to take out those unexpected moments. And even one of the key things that I read in your book was this is why I love interviewing writers, because they are able to go so deep into a story. One of these uh, writers you interviewed in the new, new journalism, he was writing a book about prison guards and he had, I think, different ways to get out the information. It can be while interviewing the guards, but he chose to get a job as a guard himself. And after the first day, you have written it really beautifully that how he just lay down on his bed and like, oh, that was a crazy experience. And even when I read the books which have been converted into movies like Into the Wild, The Godfather, they are so in-depth because the writer has lived in some or the other way, had that physical contact about the people that he she is writing about. This is my question that when an aspiring student writes script, do you think a person should approach a script as a book right in detail or it should be treated as a screenplay book not sure not sure what you mean but you mean uh, should it be written as a book and then a screenplay or written first as a, a screenplay is that what for you example mean? if someone has an idea of a 
movie that this is what I can write about. Oh, so I should see. they just write it like a book where they are going into each and every detail? Or like a ho typical Hollywood screenplay where they want the I least see. amount of yes. words? Now, I understand what you mean. Uh, I've never written a screenplay, so I, I, I know there's an art and also quite a you know, very detailed structure to screenplays. So I really couldn't comment on on that. I, I have known a lot of people who have had screen uh, have had books turned into whether it's documentaries or movies or whatever. And and I've also edited a lot of people. And I mean, one of my one of the sort of the the rules I would think about is that, you know, you can take a piece that is uh, very well reported, but poorly written, and you can make it a lot better. If you take a piece that's very poorly reported, but very well written, you can only do so much with it. And I mean, to me, it's really all about the reporting. And so, you know, for the book, it's the case with the Ted Conover, who you're referring to was a prison guard in his books, um, New Jack. Yeah. Um, you know, he, the, first, the first attempt he tried to make was to interview other guards and, you know, he was going to sort of do this. He tried different methods, but he ended up doing this kind of participation. He worked for nearly a year as a guard and it just gave him you know as you mentioned this uh, you know this kind of overwhelming detail he had so much uh, to do he uh he had so many you know one of the things prison guards do is they keep notes all the time they have a little notebook in there and he was able to take just copious notes and then you know record them when he got home and it it's i think it's the best nonfiction is just bristling with details and certainly the reporting should be bristling with details much of which gets left out but uh in the final drafts but uh i think that unless you start with the experience itself and your subjective experience of the experience right it's one thing to say i was a prison guard you go wow that sounds interesting and then you sort of describe you know some of these scenes that you lived in daily and then even the way that you know you you start to be fond of certain prisoners and you learn about what they've done and you hate them and you know those kind of details uh that's what makes makes a great book so I think that that probably would have to come first. I like your point about having the reporting material really detailed. And I feel one of the key things that can lead to that is by having quality sources. And the way you are able to do that in your books from connecting in a culture like Japan, which is completely uh, on the other dimension, and then interviewing these abductees by trying to get as much information as possible, it's not an easy thing to achieve. So how can an aspiring writer reach out to such quality sources and you know, kind of begin that process of getting so much detail? Because I've heard many experienced journalists say that now more than ever, there is a need to have really good sources where we can get in-depth news and an unbiased view of you know, current events. I mean, I think that, I mean, the kind of writing that I, and the reporting that I do, it's not uh, deadline uh, material. It's not like there's no, you know, I worked on that book for almost 10 years, you know, eight years, nine years. And, uh, you know, so one of the things that if you're doing this kind of work that you have on your side is time, if you're able to carve it out. And the only reason I was able to get people to talk to me in any depth in Japan and in South Korea as well was by coming back again and again and again i mean i spent pretty much every year i'd spend up from a few weeks to a few months in in the in the region and you know the first time 
you go, they give you this sort of standard story. This has been, it hadn't been written about much in the United States and outside of Japan, but it had been written about tremendously in Japan. So the facts were very well known, even to people who weren't particularly involved with the program, with the, uh, the phenomenon. And they would, you know, they would give me very much the standard story, right. That, that everyone wants to hear. And I'd, you know, take that respectfully. And then I'd learn a lot more both about the abductions and about the cultures and, you know, and the misgivings they had about each other and everything. And then I'd go back and ask sort of more questions. And they'd sort of be puzzled. Well, what are you doing here again? I gave you the story you know, last year or last week, whatever. So, you know, and then I'd come back again and then again. And and so that, you know, that yielded sometimes very small things, but but it yielded a different kind of story, even, even as the story sort of changed a little bit over time. And I think that, you know, people... You know, people have a very, I don't know how it is in India, but people in the United States have a very low opinion of journalists, uh, probably below lawyers and politicians or maybe on par with those. And so you have to combat that, you know, and you have to uh, show certain virtues that they assume you don't have, like being able to stick to things, being able to be, you know, somewhat honest in the way you present yourself. I mean, they saw that I was presenting myself the same way over and over again, that I had a bigger project in mind, that I wasn't just trying to do the sensationalist thing. So you have certain things you can control. Uh, and I think that's the that's the way to get um, good characters is to, you know, is to make the characters want to talk to you because, you know, they don't have to. I mean, that's something we forget about. We don't have like, we don't have a badge or something like to make people talk to us. People can just say no. So you For have sure. to provide them reason it takes uh, immense consistency to be in a position where you can um, make people vulnerable in the sense of getting that information first-hand experience of a unique information and having right. interviewed the abductees yourself is there any experience that sticks out that completely changed your preconceived notion about maybe north korea that you thought wow like this person experienced something out of the ordinary that people can never comprehend could happen or is there anything in the body language that you noticed it wasn't so much the body language but it was again it was this i mean north korea is is pretty much the the closest to a completely totalitarian regime that is on the face of the earth you know it, it's sort of authoritarian for sure but beyond that it's you know china seems like a walk in the park compared to uh north korea so right. so the thing is that you know you can only say so many uh use so much hyperbole describing how awful things are and you kind of run out of adjectives and people know that no one to me the interesting thing was how did they survive how did you how do you spend 25 years and have a family and have a relationship and get married and work and come out i mean they you know I, i'm sure they're scarred i'm not denying that but they were you know lovely people normal seeming and and you know that and there were some abductees who 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 committed suicide um so i mean there you know there is that's another response to this terrible uh situation and i was just curious like what is everyday life like and i once at one of the abductees um i once asked her she and her husband uh about i said what did your what did your house look like and she, she looked at me like i was crazy and i said when she at first she said which house because they were moved around not a lot but i said okay well the last one you were at you know mm. and then she started describing it a bit and it was very tentative and i said 
I'm I, surely people, if someone's asked you this, just, uh, no one, no one's asked me that. No one, that no one would ask me that sort of implying it was yeah. quite kind of rude. And, you know, that's the other thing, the freedom of being an outsider is the freedom to be rude or to be, to not fit in, you know, in a very conformist society like Japan, you know, you can't fit in if you're not there and you make the most of it. But that was, I mean, getting her to describe what the house looked like and think about the basics of living was to me uh, the most extraordinary thing. It wasn't this sort of dramatic, you know, knowledge. Um, anyway, that, that, that told me a lot. How do you keep yourself mentally prepared because when you're going into a culture that is entirely different from what you have lived through how can you one keep themselves mentally strong to be persistent and go for those unique experience and be still be ethical but at the same time be a little aggressive towards getting the right information this is one of the areas where I would say that Americans have a sort of unfair advantage because Americans, you know, the birthright of an American, I mean, no matter whether you're born high or low or black or white or whatever, you believe you can do anything. It's sort of is something in the water, you know, and it's part of it. Believe me, it's not a great characteristic internationally. I'm and, still and, waiting for you to take out that CIA badge out. Yeah, yeah. But there is this idea that sort of like you have a sense of of, of entitlement which is, again, something that I think people understandably castigate Americans for. But it helps as a journalist. You know, I didn't feel entitled that they had to talk to me, but I also didn't feel that I had to ask meekly and, you know, be overly polite and and be, um, you know, uh, w- worry about being pushy or taking the first no and say, oh, okay, I, I don't want to get in your face or something. I felt like that. I mean, that's something I don't have as much trouble doing. And that I think helps, especially in a situation where politeness and there's the theatricality of, of, of social life is so important. Um, but it is hard to say mentally strong because also those, you know, the responses are so circuitous and there's so much stuff Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, the, the balance I was finding, it doesn't matter where I'm reporting of, letting someone have their say but also getting to what you want to talk about because you know it's it's it is rude and i'm not a rude person to come in and say no here are my 10 questions that's all i would then, then you might as well fax them the questions or you know do it through email or something like that but you know you have and one of the one of the tricks i use is if somebody has a, a substantial commitment to something you know you've written a phd you, you're you know you've, you've written a thesis dissertation you've had experience in the Peace Corps, whatever, ask about it. I mean, chances are no one has ever asked, you know, such and such a person about his dissertation for his PhD and actually wanted to hear the answer. Or maybe I've read part of it. And, you know, not to show them I'm smart, but say, look, I really care. You've done something substantive and interesting. I, I care about that. And let them talk for, you know, however long about that. And then, uh, you know, then go on to your, to your stuff. I think that's, that's the 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 trying to guide a conversation it's a very you know it's live action you can't sort of you know do it over again and edit it it's you know it's i i leave my interviews especially if they're long multi-hour interviews with just a terrible headache almost always tear i'm I'm exhausted and i've really the headache part is the part that i really i I can totally understand that how much effort it must have taken in your part not just to interview but then edit through all those hundreds of thousands words how do you relax yourself let's make this an ending question 
how do I relax myself? You yeah, mean, any hobby outside or, of writing? Yeah, anything to just relax. How to take yeah, your mind it's off? A good, it's a good question. I mean, I like I like listening to music. I like uh, I like walking. I have a nice dog. We go for long walks. Uh, I play tennis. Um, I'm not particularly good at uh, sort of sitting back and relaxing. I mean, I'm, I'm plenty. I do it plenty, but <laughs> I wish I could say I had a like a great activity. You know that I. I went and did that made me uh, that healed me after that. But uh, uh, I, I ended up probably just taking Advil, I think, after those, <laughs> those experiences. But I am just really drained and tired. And I'm also a big napper. I like napping. So I do take a nap occasionally to recover. Sure. Now we have one thing in common. We both like naps. So <laughs> there we go. Thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been such a nice experience reading your work and now getting a chance to talk to you. No, well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. For sure. Once again, thank you for joining us, uh, Robert, sir. Hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. With this, we end our episode 16 with Robert Boynton. If you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, feel free to share your five-star review and do check out our YouTube and Instagram to watch video snippets of all our latest episodes. Once again, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Music